0: Well, good morning, glad you guys, yes, good morning, glad you guys all made it out today and found it. If you came in through the top, way, boy, that was an exciting adventure. Uh, But anyway, we're here, and I'm glad you're here, and uh, we're going to open the Word of God together this morning as we uh, normally do. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5. I started this uh, message last Sunday, so I'm coming back. To it to wrap it up, looking at verses ten and eleven, and then one more message, kind of the final greetings that Peter gives right at the end. I will do a separate message for that and uh, next week, and then we will move into the book of First Thessalonians. Okay. Also, do save the date for our business meeting. I hope it's business meeting sounds stuffy. It's a family meeting. It's a family meeting where we well that could sound. (laughs) scary. I don't know what kind of family meetings you have. Uh, but yeah, family meeting where we're going to discuss some business. We're going to have a meal together. And this year we're going we're gonna to bring in a taco guy. So yeah, so that'll be fun. A good one, a good taco guy. And so you don't have to bring dishes and everything. And uh, we'll talk more about that. Uh, I'll talk more about that next week a little bit about the details. But anyway, we'd love for everyone to be there just so we can inform you. The membership there votes, so if you're not a member, you just wouldn't be voting on some particular issues, but we still would like you there uh, so that you can hear and ask questions. We'll have a time of questions, and uh, if, you, if you have some questions that need to be answered. So, in our text today, 1 Peter 5, 10 through 11, the Apostle Peter refers to God, and it's also the title of the message as the God of all grace. This is going to be weird, because ha- more than... Two-thirds of you are at this side. This is, uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need some little adjusting here. But he refers to God as the God of all grace. And beloved, it is indeed an accurate and beautiful title uh, for our God, and one that we should continually meditate on, that our God, the one we belong to, the only true and living God, is indeed the God of all grace. So this morning we'll return to verses 10 and 11. I'll say some things that I've said before and, and then... Uh, conclude the message. As a reminder, the immediate context of these verses, that is 10 and 11, the immediate context are the ones right before it, which are verses 8 and 9. And that is uh, where Peter has just warned his persecuted Christian readers about a very dangerous and powerful adversary who is bent on destroying the believers, his, uh, the readers, that is the devil, destroying Christians. And then Peter went on to exhort them his readers to resist the devil by standing firm on the truths of the Christian faith. For encouragement Peter also pointed out that throughout the world their brothers and sisters in Christ were enduring similar sufferings. And now, so that's the context leading up to this, and now in verse 10, Peter directs his readers' attention to their God and his grace. And as I've said before, God's grace, when we think about God's grace, God's grace toward us is his undeserved favor or kindness, support, and care given to us in our unworthiness. Okay? That's God's grace and we belong to the God of all grace. So let me read the passage, and we'll keep moving forward. Verses 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, as I pointed out last time... um, In the original Greek manuscripts, verse 10 actually begins with the phrase, and the God of all grace. It starts that way, and, connecting back to what he just said, and, I need to tell you this too, and the God of all grace. Uh, The NIV puts the wording like this, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself, and the passage goes on. Uh, with the verbs, restore you, and so on and so forth. And I mentioned this last time, but I prefer holding to the original word order as the NIV does in some other translations because I believe that Peter begins his sentence with these words, with that statement, and the God of all grace, he does that on purpose. He does it on purpose. He does it, he does it because that's where he wants his reader's attention to be. That's where he wants them to focus in on at that moment. So here, just to remind you, are some of my uh, thoughts about uh, this section. And just kind of follow along with the, the thinking or the logic here as I'm trying to help you uh, see all that I believe is here in this passage. So we know that these Christians Peter wrote to were suffering, right? We know that because we've read it throughout the letter. It's a major theme of the letter. They were suffering or experiencing trouble, or persecution to one degree or another from unbelievers around them, okay, from unbelievers around them. It was that kind of trouble, persecution. Why? Why were they being persecuted? Well, for faithfully following the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, for living for him and manifesting his righteousness in their lives, a righteousness manifested in an unrighteous world that doesn't prefer righteousness. And maybe this trouble that they were having, this persecution, uh, this pressure that they were getting from unbelievers had surprised them. Peter said earlier in chapter 4, verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be surprised. You can expect this as a follower of Jesus Christ in a fallen World and remember, I said this to you. I told you, they grew up these uh, Christians who were primarily Gentiles that Peter is writing to. They would have been pagans. They would have uh, uh, they would have uh, worshipped a host of imaginary gods. Okay, and in that type of religion, pagan religion, if If you did what the god or goddesses or gods uh, wanted you to do, then things were supposed to go well with you. So this might have been a shock to them or surprising to them that, okay, I'm, I'm doing the things that my Lord and Savior has called me to do and walking in his righteousness and repenting of my old evil ways. And yet, and yet, things are not necessarily all going well for me. And so there could have been a surprise. And beloved, it would, it would no doubt, it would no doubt if persecution uh, came here in a greater way, because it exists even today in America, to to one degree or another, but if it came in an even greater way here, it would probably surprise Christians today too, right? Because uh, maybe they're not pagan or coming from a pagan background, but there are similarities between paganism and a false gospel called the prosperity gospel. Because the prosperity gospel says, hey, Uh, You come to Jesus and everything goes well, right? You get the house and you get the boat and you get the car and you get health and you get wealth as long as you believe him and, of course, have enough faith and, you know, say the right words or whatever. I mean, so I could see that's kind of out there. Even if people don't attend a prosperity gospel church, they live among people who do, Probably, probably, and that kind of thinking surrounds them, that you come to Jesus, and he takes care of all your junk, all your, in the sense of all your problems, they go away. Newsflash, you come to Jesus, you might have a new set of problems as you begin to follow him. Why? Because as you follow him, you're going to walk in his righteousness and repent of your unrighteousness, and you live in a world of unrighteousness, and they don't like it much when you begin to proclaim the righteousness of Jesus Christ and live it out, all right? Those who are living in rebellion to God, they don't like it. And so they push back. And because people hate God, they hate his son. And so as you represent his son, that hate will come towards you, okay? And in addition, maybe some of Peter's Christian readers were tempted to believe One of the lies of their adversary, which again would have been a lie that was uh, found and birthed in paganism, which is of the devil, and think that their suffering and persecution was because God maybe didn't really care about them or because they had done something wrong or not done enough to please their God or merit or earn his favor. That's how paganism functions, beloved. If you've ever looked at or studied it, it's a vile and wicked thing, but all of the gods of Rome and the Greek gods and the gods that these Christians that Peter was writing to would have known and maybe had followed and have since repented of, they had to, they had to come and do something to get this God to pay attention to them and do something to impress him and do something to bring his favor to them. And if they, if they messed up in some way, then their God would become very angry and wrathful and curse them and destroy their crops. So they thought and so on and so forth. So no doubt they brought that junk right into the one and true living God as they embraced him. They were still having to get rid of that. They might've been tempted to believe those lies of paganism in worshiping their God and going, well, maybe we've Maybe he doesn't care, that's why we're suffering in this way, or maybe, maybe we haven't done enough, or maybe we've done something wrong, I don't know. Right? It's, uh, it's not so, though. See, it's so different, and this is what I was thinking about the uh, past couple of weeks. The Christian God, who is the only true God, is so unique so unique, and in a most wonderful and beautiful and glorious and praiseworthy way. The Christian does not serve or belong, as the pagans did or do, who still worship such things, to an apathetic or cruel or sadistic or capricious or fickle God. Rather, Christians serve and belong to the God of all grace. The God of all grace. So, beloved, we live as believers in Jesus Christ. We live in God's favor. We are swimming, if you will, in his continual kindness and support and sovereign care even though we are and always will be unworthy of it. Unworthy of it. This is our God. And, continuing on, thinking this through, and why maybe Peter's writing what he's writing, Peter may have certainly anticipated some anxiety among his readers concerning his warning to his readers about their, remember the context, ferocious and powerful adversary who was looking to do them harm, which is then followed by an exhortation to them that they must not run and hide, but resist him, this roaring lion. And so I think Peter, taking everything into consideration, the historical context, the the context of the scriptures here, trying to understand everything that was going on, I think Peter, as he closes out his letter here, looks to turn his readers' hearts and minds to something very important, not only for them to remember, but for us to remember as well, beloved, and that is who their God is and who our God is. He is indeed the God of all grace. Who will, by his divine grace, Enable them and enable us to persevere in this fallen and troubled world until they and we receive the wonderful promise of God's gracious salvation. So it's as if Peter is thinking this. I just, again, processing this for the last couple weeks. It's as if he's thinking, listen, I... I know you have suffered and you may or likely will continue to one degree or another from time to time to suffer in this world for following Christ. And yes, you have a great enemy who opposes you actively and looks to crush you. So you must be alert to his sadistic attacks, and stand firm against him in the truth. But, 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 remember this, dear Christian. You can, you must, fully trust and rest and have full confidence in your God. For he is the God of all grace and you have his favor and you will till the end till the end so the right response to what peter says in closing would be i really have no need to worry then or to fret or wonder or be confused or entertain for a moment the lies of the devil. The God of all grace has got me. He's got me and he will never leave me nor forsake me, but has saved me and will sustain me by the power of his limitless and amazing grace. As a Christian, as Christians, beloved, we are covered completely in the grace that forever belongs to all who are in Christ. That's praiseworthy, beloved. That is hope strengthening, confidence building. That gives you a peace and a joy that the world cannot know because they do not know Christ or the God of all grace. The lost world. Now, looking back at the text, kind of picking up where we left off, referring, um, using the NIV wording and how they structured it, Peter says, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. So he he called you in Christ is the proper way to understand this. He called you in Christ to his eternal glory. The Father did. It is in Christ or in union with Christ that the Christian is called to this eternal glory. And what is that eternal glory but the saving grace of God? So you have really an important reminder as he As he points them to the God of all grace, Peter is basically saying, look, as a work of his grace, or his undeserved favor and kindness, he has called the Christian to his eternal glory in Christ. And when you think of his eternal glory, as as one writer puts it, it's an expression that really just summarizes all that God has, all the wonder, all the delight, all the prize, all the reward all the blessing that God has in store, in store for his saints, for those in Christ. But when you look at the word called, Peter says that you were called, this God of grace called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Don't miss that. That word called, as it's used by Peter and by Paul, almost always stresses God's sovereign working. God's sovereign working called, drew you, his work. So one writer says this, and I think it's it's uh, good and worth noting as, as Peter is trying to focus his readers' minds on this God of all grace and his sovereign grace and saving them. He says this, and the fact that you were called unto christ that you might have this eternal glory share in it one day the writer says you didn't come to him christian that is to god to christ by your own strength or effort you think about the the pagans and and the pagan worshipers everything was about them their effort their ability but our god is so different the christian god He calls his people unto himself by his own mighty and strong hand. So the writer says, you didn't come to him by your own strength and effort. God did it. He called you sovereign, saving grace. But get this, he didn't call you to condemn you or to leave you hanging but to bring you to his eternal glory in Christ. That's the God of all grace. You will dwell in his presence throughout eternity. Therefore, in your trial, in your trouble, in your suffering, in your persecution, look ahead to what God has promised the sovereign God, and he comes through every time on his promises, beloved, this God, and you can count on him because he's faithful, unlike the pagan gods that change their direction at any whim. Look ahead to what God has promised for those whom he has called, and you can trust him to bring you through it. So encouraging, so strengthening, for the strength for the soul are these words from Peter, for the Christian soul. You belong to the God of all grace. You've been saved by his grace, saved for eternal glory. Another writer says this, the theme of calling to glory reminds the readers that end time salvation is sure. God's called you to this for God himself is the one who initiated and secured their salvation. He planned it out. He worked it out and is working it out and will bring you to the end that he has determined for you. And remember, he's the God of all grace. As the rest of the verse will demonstrate, God will certainly complete what he has inaugurated. Their calling to glory is not questionable, but sure. But sure. And so is ours if we are in Christ. Looking back now at the text again, And the God of all grace, who, by the way, remember, called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while. I mentioned last time that this phrase stands in strong contrast, really, to the eternal glory where there is no more suffering, okay? No more suffering, no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. No more persecution. Can you imagine being surrounded by people who are Christ followers as well? So they glory with you in righteousness. They rejoice with you in the Christ that you proclaim and live for in honor. Can you imagine? Because that is not our, our situation today. But oh, what a day it will be when the family gets together and there is nothing but rejoicing. Not blasphemy, not vile words towards our Lord, not the questioning of our faith, but the rejoicing in it and celebrating of it with our Lord and Savior. It's hard for me to imagine such things. I try because it delights my soul, but it's certainly not the world I live in now. But... Eternal glory will be the Christians because of God's saving grace towards them. And beloved, the point is, in contrasting the two or making that contrast, the point is their suffering, regardless of how long it may last on this earth, is still only for a little while. He's not, he's not, he's not suggesting that he knows exactly how long the duration will be for them on this earth. He, knows, he does not know such things. That is up to God. But he's pointing that either way, in light of their eternal glory, it is for a little time. Yeah? It is for a little time. And for me, as a, as a believer walking with you through this messed up world, these are one of the truths I need to come back to again and again for my own heart. One of the, the doctrines I must embrace and believe Because as we're living throughout this world, we start to think this is all it is. This is it. And it's forever. We kind of just get stuck in the midst of it. And we got to pull out from it and get the proper perspective. This is for a little time. Even if I can live 70 or 80 or 90 and really not looking forward to that, to be honest with you, other than seeing the grandkids have spouses and have kids, I would delight to see that. But Goodness gracious, I'd rather be home with my Lord, waiting for you guys to get there. <laughs> and seeing those that have gone before. One, one commentator points out that Peter here, in just saying for a little while, he, he's not looking to make little of the reality of their present suffering. He's He's simply looking to offer encouragement in the, in the midst of it. It's for a little while, in light of the eternal glory that God, the God of all grace, has called you to, my dear troubled Christian. It reminds us of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16 or 17 through 18, that is. For this light, think about who wrote this, the Apostle Paul. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, yet to come. For the things that are seen are transient, it means they're passing away, they're temporary. That's this world, beloved, and its system and its troubles and its problems and its persecution and its hate for God. It's transient. It's passing away. It's temporary. But the things that are unseen, all the promises of God, his kingdom, its glory, are unseen, are eternal, forever, everlasting. There is no end to the glory that we will share. With our God. He is the God of grace. Again, all of this has strengthened the hearts of these these Christians to encourage them, to fortify their hope, to have them believe the truth about their God. He loves them. He's given them His grace in Jesus Christ. He saved them. He's called them to this eternal glory. They have His favor. They don't need to earn it or merit it. They have it. So, going back to the text now, the God of all grace, after you have suffered a little while, then, the SV says, will himself, this God of all grace, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is beautiful too. He could have just said, the God of all grace will do these things, but there is this word himself, will himself, kind of a Seems redundant, but it's not. It's meant to emphasize that God himself, taking it upon himself, he will. It's his own concern, and he will personally, on behalf of the readers, do these things. Why? Because he is the God of all grace to you. He is the God of all care and support and favor. That is who you belong to, so he himself in his love and in his power and in his strength and in his sovereign, wonderful, amazing grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Kind of, You know, I mean, if it was someone else, a human being of sorts that I was told is going to will himself do these things. There's always wonder. There's always, you don't know. You you can't be certain. He may have good intentions. She may have good intentions, but she may not come through. He may not come through. They may change their mind. They may decide they don't like you anymore. You may lose favor with them. But when you are told that it is the God of all grace who himself will, that sovereign one, the one who chose you and called you to share in his eternal glory. And these words are powerful indeed. Rock solid. They don't get any stronger. The verbs, by the way, all these verbs here, Restore, confirm, strengthen, establish. They're all in the future indicative. So all that means, really, indicative, when we talk about indicative, imperative, imperative is a command. Indicative is a statement of fact. Okay? This is the future indicative. That means that these statements of facts will occur. These are things that will occur. You can count on it. They express the firm assurance of what God will do. One writer says they express the unquestioned assurance surging through Peter's heart. Oh, you dear, you dear suffering believers, have no fear. You serve the God of all grace who will himself. Remember, he called you unto his saving grace and he will He will, you can count on it, you can take it to the bank. He will do these things. They will be true. I love that. I love that. I glory in these things. Beloved, as we look at these verbs, a few comments restore you. Yeah. You could also translate, make you sufficient. God will make you sufficient. He will. He will restore whatever needs to be restored to bring you and make you whole and strong and and sustain you for this troubled journey that you are on in this life on the way to glory. He will sustain you. He, He will make you sufficient. But some of these other ones, just beautiful as they add to that idea, confirm you. That means to fix or make firm or solid it, it ha- the word communicates or denotes the, the stabilizing of something so that it will not totter. Like, you know, every time you go to, uh, well, not every time, but we have these restaurants we go to, and you get out on the table, and it, it's on those four legs, and it does this. So irritating, so frustrating. It moves because it's not stable. So you take whatever you can, napkins, and you shove it under there, or gum, whatever, right? Because no one wants to be on an unstable platform trying to have their meal, It's that idea that he will will provide what is needed to stabilize you so that there is no tottering. I love that. Strengthen you. That's obvious. He will make you strong. Not, you know, uh, Popeye strong, but spiritually strong. Strong in the inner man. Strong in the heart. He will impart strength to you. His strength wow, and establish you, that just means he will place you on a firm foundation, on a firm foundation. Again, the idea of not moved, not not rocked. One writer, one commentator says, just considering these verbs, he puts it this way, God will supply believers with the needed support so that they will not topple and fall, in part the needed strength, so that they will not collapse, and set them upon an immovable foundation so that they will not be swept away. And of course, beloved, as we walk through this world, you have to believe these things, right? You must believe them and then act on them. You must by faith believe that God will do these things and look to him. And as you do those things, then you have confidence, then you have fortified hope, then you have strength to press on in the face of persecution or troubles or pressure and continue to profess faith in Jesus Christ and live him out before an ungodly and dangerous world. Another commentator says that together these verbs emphatically make the same point, basically. The God who has called believers to eternal glory will strengthen and fortify them so that they are able to endure to the end. Beloved, the things that Peter says here at the end of 1 Peter, they remind me a lot of what the Apostle Paul says. Let me remind you of that, that we have covered in the past, where in Romans eight twenty eight the Apostle Paul writes, and we know that for those who love God, God. And of course, we should pause there because even that love is not a doing of ourselves because the apostle John says that this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, 1 John 4.10. And then a few verses later, John says, we love because he first loved us our love for him is a response to his love for us experienced and and had that's why we love him that's why we're able to love brothers and sisters in christ is because of god's sovereign work in us him reaching out to us so and we know that for those who love god but even that we give back all the praise and glory to god my love for you is only because of your grace in my life What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, and he is, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And beloved, we talked about this when we went through the passage, but all things there does not mean cars, Fancy cars and big houses, as your prosperity teacher, false teachers might say. All things there is really, and I like just the simple statement that John MacArthur makes concerning this it's everything necessary to complete the purpose he had in choosing us. He'll give us everything necessary to bring us to his end. The end that he has destined us for, to be conformed perfectly to the image of Jesus Christ and to make it into glory, he will give us all things necessary for that end. Or how about this verse? Again, Peter just reminds me of other things I've read in the scriptures. Paul says this in Philippians 1, 6, and I am sure of this, sure, no doubt, that he who began a good work in you Oh, what a good work it is, beloved. We'll bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Or how about Jude? The end of Jude says this, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. It reminds me, too, of... Of the words spoken to the nation of Israel on the verge of entering the land that they were promised by God, they're going to face a lot of challenges, but they were told to be strong and courageous in Deuteronomy 31.6, to not fear or be in dread of those pagans who occupied the land, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Now, beloved, you and I are not called to occupy a land as Israel was. But we are called to live for the Lord in wherever the land is that we dwell. And so we too need to hear these words. Have no fear, do not dread. For the Lord your God will not forsake you. He goes with you. Now, I was thinking... I have a sign above my door, my front door in my house. It's hard to read because it's, uh, you know, up there, like eight, eight seven feet or whatever. I thought about moving it. I just don't know where to put it, where it would be better, like right in sight. You've seen it, yeah? This is what it says. It's just a pretty picture, but the print's kind of small. It says, the will of God will never take you where the grace of God will not protect you. That's why I like it above the front door because as you walk out, that you remember that. The will of God will never take you where the grace of God will not protect you. It's not a particular Bible verse, but it is based on Bible verses. It is based on doctrine. But I was wondering, in light of this passage, in light of Peter, I was wondering how people might think about the word protect as they read that. In light of Scripture, how should we think of the word Protect. I think some might think kept from trials and tribulations. Kept from persecution. Kept from any attacks of the devil in one's life. But that is not how to biblically understand that idea of protect or God's protection or his sovereign care and grace in our lives. No, rather protect means, if we were to understand it rightly, biblically, Means sovereignly and lovingly sustained by his grace, by his incredible kindness towards me, in all of the difficulties I will face and you will face in this life as I faithfully live for Christ, bringing me safely into his glory that his grace has called me to, an unworthy sinner to share it. That's protect. And so as we as we think on those things, and as Peter thought on those things about this grace of God who has, has poured out his saving grace on us as believers in Jesus Christ and will continue to pour into us his sustaining grace, bringing us to the end to which he has called us, knowing for certain that we have his favor, we don't have to earn it, we don't have to get God's attention. We have it. He set it on us. He chose to make us his attention for his glory as he conforms us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. We have it. Goodness, we have it. Don't doubt it, don't question it. But as you consider this and you think of the fact that I was never worthy of it, I never will be. I didn't deserve it, I can't do anything. There's nothing I could do to earn this. It's unbelievable, it's out of this world. As Peter thought about that, as we think about that, what might that cause the heart to do but to break out in praise? And that is how he finishes Verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Verse Peter 5, 11. Literally, beloved, literally, you can leave it up for a second. If you look back at the original manuscript, it says, to him, the word be is not there. To him, the dominion or you can understand that power, authority, and strength. To him, power and authority and strength, dominion forever and ever, amen. I prefer that. I prefer that. The N A T translates it this way because um, the idea is that he has this, not it's I, I hope he has this. To him belongs the power forever, amen. I think that's a better translation. This, this, this short uh, praise here, This doxology expresses a fact for which God should be glorified. And uh, as as one commentator points out, it's addressed to the very God who has thus acted on behalf of his people. As you see these displays of grace, to him and him alone then all praise is due. Finally, John MacArthur says this, contemplating all the previously mentioned divine grace as Peter's thinking about this divine grace poured out on us, his favor, his kindness, his care, his support to us who are unworthy. John MacArthur says this, Peter burst out in a short doxology rejoicing that God has dominion over all things forever and ever. Dominion actually signifies strength and here denotes God's ability to dominate to have everything in the universe under his unassailable control. Since he has all wisdom, power, authority, and sovereignty, he is worthy of all the praise and worship saints can render him. Beloved, I was recently uh, working through a book, and then we're going to share communion together. I'll close with this statement as we celebrate the grace of God. Uh, it's called Changed into His Image, a great book. I've taken some people through in the past. and would, I would recommend it to you highly. The author points out, for the Christian who's thinking rightly, every day, quote, every day of labor is just another page of a thank you card to God for the riches of his grace to him. Come up, brother, and lead us now, if you would.